0: Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. Have you ever wondered how much truth there is to the TV show Mad Men? Today's guest said it nailed the industry's early mindset about connecting to customers.
1: There's an episode where Peggy has an insight about women and lipstick, and so there was a time in advertising where that was the kind of information that was used. And essentially, agencies just took whatever the brand wanted to say and just said it. And they didn't even really think that much about connecting with their consumer, which seems crazy, but that was how it worked. And there's an episode where Peggy really thinks about the relationship between women and lipstick. And how different colors make them feel differently and really kind of dives into that motivation piece. During that time, that would have been pretty revolutionary.
0: That was Jen Bell, Partner and Strategy Director of Bell & Funk, a marketing and advertising agency here in Eugene. Her clients include Planned Parenthood, Oregon Cultural Trust, and the University of Oregon. On today's show, Jen shares her expertise about how advertising has changed over the years, tells us keys to the creative process, and shares an easy but often overlooked way that more Oregonians can support arts and culture. She's being interviewed by Lisa Kalevi, Associate Director of Engagement at the University of Oregon.
2: Jen, it's great to talk with you today wanted to know if you could just start with maybe an experience or two that you
1: happen to remember from your time at the U of O. Sure. The most important experience that I had at U of O that had the most impact on my career, and in in some ways I could even say my life, was the National Student Advertising Competition team. So within that team, you compete with other schools in your district and then go on uh, if you win your district, which we did, which was one of the best moments of my life, believe it or not. And then you go to nationals. We went to Washington, D.C. and competed there. Our client was Saturn, the car, which no longer actually is a car brand, but it it was. And um, we took fourth in the country, which was, of course, not as good as we wanted, but um, it was an amazing experience. And it gave me insight into how a new business pitch works in my field. And my first job happened to then be new business in an agency in San Francisco. And I just, I felt like I had such real insight.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. In fact, that opens up a whole um, sort of area that I wanted to chat with you about, because obviously you graduated from U of O with a degree in journalism and advertising. Did you already know that was the degree path you were on? Or did that verify, yep,
1: this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? I was somebody who was very slow to choose a major. I found all kinds of things interesting. <laughs> and fall of my junior year with the the pressure of like, you know, I probably need to pick something pretty soon. A friend of mine was taking a layout class in the journal, journalism school. And she said, and she called me Belle. She's like, Belle, you should try it. You should come take this class with me. I think you'll really like it. I'm like, great. And so I... Took the layout class, I absolutely loved it, and I applied for ad team a couple of weeks later, and uh, fortunately was chosen. So that kind of set me on the path.
0: Yeah,
2: this friend sounds like she was the transformational part of this story as well, and in, in many ways, it's so incredible how in life, it's that chance meeting that can turn into something uh, much more long term. So I think. Maybe you've obviously explained that this ad team was so pivotal in, in sort of your career path and you guys
1: placed fourth. So basically what was the pitch for Saturn? Do you remember? So we identified women in caring professions as the target for this particular SC1, which was kind of an entry-level car. So we sort of had an idea of income level. It was something that we we didn't feel like was probably going to appeal to men, um, so we, we pretty narrowly define the target and that experience is essentially the core of what I've been doing now for the last almost 30 years um, is really that, like, who are we talking to? What makes them unique? How do we connect with them with this particular brand?
2: So as someone who obviously doesn't do this professionally, I'm really curious how you even begin to answer those questions. How do you start? Where do you start with that? Who's the audience? Who are we
1: talking to? Where, where, does, the, where does the person in your profession uh, even begin? We start with the product itself and understanding sort of the role it can play in people's lives. So one of the ways we do it is through qualitative research. That's probably the most helpful tool for me. Um, so I conduct focus groups. And in those, we really get beyond quantitative findings. Like it's when you're writing a marketing campaign, it's not helpful to know that 67% of your audience has a college degree or whatever. That's not very helpful. But if you know that they are motivated by giving back to the community or you understand really what's important to them and how your brand can fit into that, that is much more helpful. In qualitative research, we get to things like motivations and barriers and gone into people's homes during dinner and interviewed them to understand the context in which, and this was for Boston Market, um, the context in which they that product lives. I've uh, interviewed women uh, talking about clothes and body image and all that for Lane Bryant. Um, which is plus-size clothing. I've stopped people on the Strip in Vegas and talked to them about gambling. I've ridden buses from Philadelphia to Atlantic City to interview people about what motivates them to go to the casino. And um, that was for the development of a casino in Atlantic City. Um, So it's really understanding their lives and how your brand can fit into it.
2: Thinking, how do you know
1: when... Someone
2: is being honest with you. I guess what I'm thinking is, as you're asking these questions, some of them can be, I would assume, rather personal. And, you know, you certainly haven't maybe had the time to establish trust with that particular individual. How do you know that they're telling you, you know, giving you good
1: information, good qualitative data? Yes, there are certain things that with focus groups, you know, people are going to say, and you know, isn't true. So one is advertising doesn't affect me. I don't even notice ads. Well, we have a lot of data <laughs> that says that actually advertising does work, and when we invest in advertising, people do actually buy things um, or you know grab onto a thought or because um, it's not just, it's not a lot of the work we've done is not about pushing a product. Um, a lot of times, it might be giving to an organization. Um, I find that people love to give their opinion. They want to help and they want to be heard. So generally they're coming from a place of authenticity. I mean, you can tell in somebody's sort of tone of voice and the speed in which they're talking, how authentic they're being for the Lane Bryant interviews. When I interviewed women about their clothing and body image that um, many of them teared up talking about it. And I really like to listen to people and be vulnerable myself. We've been talking a good bit about advertising. You're the owner of a
2: marketing advertising firm. And I've got to ask you kind of a crazy question, but
1: if you were a brand, what brand would you be? I have always seen myself as Volkswagen. (laughs) I see it as a, a very like humble brand. It's not status oriented. It's not flashy. It's solid, but it's also a little bit quirky. I think that's a fairly good description of me. Um, It also happens that the first two cars I owned were Volkswagens. And my dad, who was a physician in town, drove a Volkswagen Rabbit. That was our family car. And in the doctor's parking lot, you'd see all these, you know, fancy Mercedes and BMWs and all that. And then, you know, my dad's four-door brown Rabbit. And I just always thought that was cool. And I just really respect that. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm still a Volkswagen, even though I I have a Subaru. That
2: was good. I was going to say, are you still driving one? Okay. I love that. And I'm going to overshare a little bit here um, as the person leading this discussion. I think I'm the only person in the world not to have watched Mad Men and uh, therefore was absent in a lot of conversations around the proverbial water cooler. But I wonder if you did and if you did what? Do you think the series got right about that creative process in advertising?
1: There's an episode where Peggy has an insight about women and lipstick. Ooh, and more. so there was a time in advertising that, like I said, about the quantitative research where that was the kind of information that was used. And essentially agencies just took whatever the brand wanted to say and just said it. And they didn't even really think that much about connecting with their consumer, which seems crazy, but that was how it worked. And there's an episode where Peggy really thinks about the relationship between women and lipstick and how different colors make them feel differently and really kind of dives into that motivation piece. During that time, that would have been pretty revolutionary. Um, I think Don Draper's character shows the importance of selling an idea and how to sell an idea with confidence. And then I I think the other thing is when you see Don Draper have a creative idea, it often kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit. And and this is going to sound like contradictory to my strategy and research background, but sometimes that's just how it works. A creative person just has a good idea. Then often do what I call post-creative rationalization. So we have a great idea, and then we figure out how we support it and make it sound like it happened in this like logical path. When often it didn't, but it's easier to present that idea to a client if it sounds like it. Ha- there's a rational, logical path, yeah. um, but often there's not. <laughs>
2: there's a certain degree of learning to become comfortable with the fact that you can't always name what the creative process is, but you know it when you see it kind of thing, or you feel it in a way that that's the idea. And as you say, you kind of retrofit it in some ways, which is not to say you're not also paying attention to the qualitative research you're doing, but is that a fair summary of what you were saying?
1: Yes. People who are in this field, tend to pay a fair amount of attention to sociology and sort of general trends that are happening. So you're you're not starting from zero. And when when you live in a community of the size of Eugene and do the amount of qualitative research I've done, after a while you just you have a bank of information about this community, sort of generally, what what's important to us. The different kind of groups within the community. So you're starting with a foundation.
2: I don't want to ask you to share any trade secrets, but um, what are some of those things that you know about this community after those many decades of that research and and actually being from here originally? I know you left for a period of time, San Francisco. Uh, I believe is where you got your career sort of started and then returned back. But yeah, I wonder if you would share
1: any of the things that you have taken away from all of those years of talking to people in this community. Something I've found myself writing about, particularly lately, has been how much we value inclusion in this community and the feeling that everyone should have access to experiences here. And you see this with the arts. I think other communities are more comfortable being more stratified than we are. I think we're a pretty, we want sort of a level playing field. I think that shapes a lot of our decision-making as a community. And in this community, you cannot tell what somebody's socioeconomic status is. It cracks me up. I mean, the, it really does. You know, in, in other cities or sort of more status-oriented places, you would absolutely know. You would just look at someone and you would know. In Eugene, you might see someone at a hardware store wearing the same thing they would wear to the symphony. Culturally, what do you what do you connect with most here in, in Eugene? I think people in Eugene, we all have sort of our hobbies and interests and like people have a life and they... They value having a life. Most people I interact with are makers of some kind or artists. They have gardens. They, um, you know, hike and camp. And I appreciate that Eugene, culturally, A, we have an amazing arts and culture scene that is way beyond what you would expect in our size community. The fact that you can go hear live music every night of the week, you can attend... Major events, small theater productions, I think is amazing, especially as a person in a creative field. And then I also really appreciate that individual community members are generally makers or artists or artisans of some kind. And so it, it feels like a, an environment that is about creativity. And it's one of the things I just love about Eugene.
2: Well, and that reminds me of something that you've um, talked to me about in the past, which is not only is Eugene, as you said, unique for its size and, and its cultural and artistic offerings, but our state is actually rather unique in what it's able to do for its arts and cultural community. Can you tell me more about that?
1: One of the most amazing and purely only Oregon things is we have the ability as Oregonians to actually tell the legislature how we want some of our tax money spent. A lot of Oregonians don't know that they have the option to actually direct a greater portion of their taxes, the taxes that they're going to pay anyway, to arts and culture. How do they do that? They do that with the what's called the cultural tax credit. And it is specifically for people who already donate to a cultural nonprofit in the state, then they also donate to the Oregon Cultural Trust, and they get the money that they give to the trust back as a tax credit.
2: So this Oregon Cultural Trust, it's unique to the state of Oregon. What makes it unique? How did it even get started?
1: The Oregon Cultural Trust started in 2001 when a group of legislators and community members were concerned about how much arts and culture and music programs and historic preservation and all of these things were no longer being funded by the legislature, and they saw a future where those things weren't happening and weren't funded, and that concerned them. So, similar to you know the bottle bill and the beach bill, things that Oregon was a leader in, they said, let's create something that allows people if they want to direct more of their tax dollars to culture. So they essentially said, we will allow Oregonians who want to have more of their tax dollars fund culture to do that. But first we need them. We need to know that they have skin in the game. So essentially that's the signal. Yes, I value culture. I'm willing to give my own money. If you do that, we'll let you also direct more of your tax dollars to culture. So that was the birth of the Oregon Cultural Trust, which is essentially a granting organization that through the cultural tax credit, which is the mechanism by which people can direct their taxes, that's when it launched. And it's been challenging to get the word out about this generally unless you're a CPA, you don't really enjoy talking about taxes and tax credits and things like that. Over the last couple of years, we have increased the number of people using the cultural tax credit by about 20%. And so we're proud of that progress and we look forward to building further on it.
2: That's fantastic. And we'll definitely throw a link in our podcast for folks who are listening and want to know more. But again, given the fact that you're an advertising pro and you think a lot about how we communicate and what words we choose, I'd love to just fire off a few kind of fun questions, short answer type things on the fly. Do you mind? Are you in? I'm in. Okay, here we go. Jen, what would you say to someone in a creative rut?
1: Get out. Get out, travel, see something else, change up your life a bit, at least temporarily.
2: Okay, next question. What's your favorite word in the English dictionary?
1: Oh, that is a big question. Um, I'm going to go with conundrum. Nice. What should
2: be on your to-do list that isn't?
1: My 2021 taxes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Probably vacuuming. Yeah. What do people find most surprising about you? I think my first impression is very different than when somebody knows me better. I think I'm more vulnerable and soft than people initially understand. And I, and I think that's probably by design on some level that I, you know, if you're going to be that squishy on the inside, you need to have kind of a shell. (laughs) Otherwise you're just going to get chewed up and spit out. So,
2: (laughs) and my last question is maybe it's a tough one, but how would you condense your life? You're an advertising pro after all in five
1: words or less. I would say creating I've always been a maker of things and, you know, right now I pretty much sew every single day. I know this is not five words and that's just my like current obsession. I think I would say small town. I grew up in a rural area and I think that shapes me. Um, Helpful sounds funny, but it's really important to me that I am helpful to people, whether it's somebody on the street or a client or whoever it is. Non-judgmental. I think I'm pretty open to how people live their lives. What's that's for? Probably independent. Yeah, I'd say independent.
2: Jen, thanks for your time today. It's been really fun to uh, hear your uh, thoughts on advertising and, and so much more. I wonder, um, as we're wrapping up, do you have anything you want to share? Um, I'm thinking perhaps a word of wisdom or two to ducks who are following a similar career path as your own or anything else you might want to talk about?
1: A piece of advice for students would be to really stand out. Make yourself stand out to your professors, to the people around you. Don't just be one of the crowd and it will come back to you. In my case, when I arrived in San Francisco, I was contacted by the agency I wanted to work for before I had sent a resume out. I had no idea this was pre-internet, believe it or not, I had no idea how this agency contacted me. And it was through a professor in the journalism school. They contacted the journalism school and said, do you know anybody that's interested in consumer research and account planning in advertising in San Francisco? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, a former student just moved down there. And that started my career. And so absolutely stand out. Do what you can to make an impression so that you are top of mind.
2: Boy, your clients are lucky because I'm just thinking as you're saying that in many ways, that's what you're doing for them, right? Is making sure their product or their idea is standing out. So I think that's great advice. Loved talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Lots of fun and go Ducks. Thanks, Lisa. Go Ducks.